Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to today's online event at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Catherine Boyle and I'm a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. I'm pleased to be here today to, to welcome author Jimmy Sony to discuss his new book, The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. Um, and it's especially wonderful to be here because I knew Jimmy uh, in my early 20s. And this book really takes place talking um, about a group of people who supported each other and worked really hard together and have been lifelong friends, uh, meeting after college, meeting in their early 20s. So it's very special for me as a, as a, a former fellow journalist and writer uh, to be interviewing him because we shared that time together as well. Uh, but in The Founders, Jimmy unpacks the long and difficult journey of PayPal from a barely known startup to one of the largest tech companies in the world world and a household name. In it, he tells us of the unsung heroes, extreme competition, and huge challenges faced by the company as it fought to implement cashless currency back when few dared to try. Um, so we'll be covering a lot in the next hour, and we encourage you to put the questions um, in the chat on YouTube. Um, we'd love to solicit some audience questions at the end. Um, so we'll be getting to your questions later in the program. But for now, welcome, Jimmy. Well, thank you, Katie. Thank you for, for having me. And I, I honestly, like I couldn't I, I couldn't think of anyone better to do this with because we've known each other now for well over a decade and, you know, it'll make it more fun and we can tell embarrassing stories as well as stories about the founders. <laughs> yeah, well, no, and, and, and what's great is, you know, one of the things that always surprised me, especially when you first said you were doing this book, is that you are an outsider to Silicon Valley. So it was really sort of jumping into a subject matter that you hadn't necessarily addressed before. You, you, you know, you're, you're not someone on the West Coast. You're not a tech journalist. What made you want to tell the story of PayPal? Yeah, it's um, it was it was circuitous, right? So I sort of freely admit that actually in the introduction, I kind of write that I'm like probably not the person who should be doing this. I'd always sort of joked with my friends. I was like, really, like Walter? I should just hand this project to Walter Isaacson. Like this is a Walter book. Um, uh, my last book was about an engineer and mathematician named Claude Shannon, and in the course of doing that book, which was called A Mind at Play, I looked at the place where he was where he spent a big chunk of his professional life, which was Bell Laboratories. And Bell Labs in the 20th century is, is in today and then was renowned as this just incredible hub of, of innovation. They invent touch-tone dialing. Uh, they invent the laser. They invent satellite technology, communications networks, and the transistor. Um, they win several Nobel Prizes. It's basically like the, the place to be innovative in the 20th century. Uh, in the United States in technology. And Bell Labs is a, an incredible, that's not from the mind of one person, it's from a group of people. So I started thinking like, what are other groups in American history where it's been that fertile and that kind of rich and, and enlivening? And I actually, I looked at other topics. Like I, the one, the, the roads not taken were Fairchild Semiconductor, um, where you, you famously have this group, somebody had written the book. Um, there was a book about Xerox Park that covered that kind of cluster as well. Uh, I think the book was called Where the Wizards Stay Up Late, which was, I always thought, one of the best titles for a, a book about this. And then then there's General Magic. And General Magic, like I got, I was excited about it, but then this incredible documentary came out and it was sort of like, nope, asked and answered. Like they're going to, they own that. It's so good and everyone should see it. Um, pay, I PayPal was, a, a, I stumbled, it sort of went forward in the history, stumbled into it. And I just started asking questions. I, I sort of assumed that because of the personalities involved, Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, the founders of YouTube, Peter Thiel, Max Levchin, David Sachs, I mean, this is a, a, like, it's like the Avengers, right? I assumed somebody had done this. 
And then when no one had, the other thing that I noticed as I asked even a few questions was that the stories were just fantastic. Like the untold stories were so good uh, and I knew there was potential there. And so that's that's how I came to it. But I most definitely came to it as an outsider, you know, because you're my friend. I can like admit, like I had called you with like the most basic questions, right? About like, well, what is it was pre-money and like what, you know, this is like terminology. But but I will say that the virtue of actually being an outsider, I found that the same thing applied in my last book and in this book. If you're an outsider who's trying to decipher something in order to make an audience understand it, you have to ask really basic questions and then build it back up in the writing. So the, the, the place I was most excited about that is, you know, everyone thinks they know what an IPO is, right? Like an initial public offering, listing on a stock exchange. But if you really like go, you have to go back to basics to understand it, to play it back to a reader. I knew like a lot of my readers weren't going to be in tech. They were never going to take a company public. So what does it mean to take a company public? Stuff like that. The basic question asking actually, I think, is an asset, not a liability for a lot of writers who go into spaces they're not familiar with. Yeah, no. And, that, and that's certainly the case in a lot of the reviews and just commentary about the book. It reads like a historical book, like it's written by a historian. And of course, historians are never part of the ecosystems that they dive into. And so, yeah, yeah. I, in some ways, I think that's what it, it's one of these books that, um, you know, a lot of books now are written by journalists who are actively part of the ecosystem. And of course, being an outsider, you can take that objective lens and sort of treat it more as a, a moment in history. I, I think the other thing, it, it's, a, it's a really great thought. The other, the other piece of it is you can ask questions that someone who has the challenging task of reporting on these people every day, you can ask questions that they're not allowed to ask, right? Like if you were dated, I don't, I don't know, I admire daily journalists who have to cover like Tesla and SpaceX and Affirm. Their task is so much harder than mine in a way, right? Because I was always, I was always the enjoyable conversation in the day, not the antagonistic conversation of the day, right? I'm not, I'm not holding their profitability statements to account. I'm asking them about 20 years ago. And so, for example, you know, a journalist is not going to be able to come to Max Levchin and say, all right, take me back to the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. Let's talk about college. I could. And he was more than open about it. So I, in some ways, my task was much easier. But coming at it from an outsider, I could also, as an outsider, I could also just like kind of riff and, you know, ask random questions that I think were relatively engaging. Totally, totally. Now, now you start the book out, and this is one of the things that I still think, even after reading the book and after thinking about it for a career, I still don't have the answer to. So I want to get your answer. You know, people look at PayPal as one of these just megawatt, like the talent coming out of PayPal is extraordinary. It, like, it touches every aspect of Silicon Valley. It touches every venture firm. It touches multiple companies, some of the most valuable companies in the world. And of course, as you said, you were looking at these pockets of innovation and pockets of talent. And you actually, I, I'm blanking on the word that you use, but there's a word for talent growing together and sort of supporting each other and sort of, you know, what was it about PayPal? And what have you learned about talent magnets and how this, you know, how this ecosystem functioned to be able to yield all of these incredible new companies and, and, and kind of new results? Yeah, the, and the word was a uh, word I didn't coin it. It was uh, Brian Eno, uh, the the music producer. He used the word senius, like instead of genius, you have senius. So it's like scene plus genius. But his word was senius, and he was describing actually artistic clusters. Uh, so he was describing like the the era and period and place in which like Rembrandt and Kandinsky and others were were doing their work. And he, what he it was funny what he writes about, I, I riff on it in the intro. He says when he was in art school, he learned that these were like 
solitary geniuses, you know, revolutionaries. But but really, what, when he started studying more, he realized like there were art collectors and there were people underwriting the art and there were music, you know, there were like different venues and people and a whole cluster and an ecosystem that was supporting this particular gift, right? So Cenius is interesting because it actually like leads you to think about this story, not as like, you know, Apple equals Steve Jobs, Facebook equals Mark Zuckerberg, Microsoft equals Bill Gates, right? With PayPal, you don't have that. You have a, a lot of people. You have at least 200 people in Palo Alto, several hundred more in Omaha when the company goes public. And you have some of the brightest lights in, in modern technology. And so for me, what I, what I was trying to do, you know, it was sort of two, one, one ambition was just tell the story, meaning what happened from 1998 to 2002 to create PayPal. No one had really gone back and done a, a detailed look at that. And, and the hope, was, that was the sort of goal. The hope was in doing that, you might illuminate like, oh, here are a few of the things that like actually made this, this group uh, that, that, that made the group what it is later, right? So my story, you know, is going to disappoint some people because it actually stops in late 2002. So I don't, I don't really write about all the things these people are more famous for today, but I do think there were some common threads in, and things in the water in those early years that were really striking to me. Um, and hopefully are striking to readers too. Totally. Now, you have some megawatt personalities in this book, very famous people, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, uh, Reid Hoffman, and yet you start the story, and the story does in some ways revolve around Max. Talk, talk to us about like why you chose to start the story there and how you sort of realize that the story, in many ways, even though there's many personalities, is that he's one of the primary protagonists. Yeah, it was... Um... You know, authors are allowed like editorial curveballs, and uh, that was one of the ones that I wanted to throw. There's a few in the book, but that's one of them. So, if you take a step back, the the PayPal we know is the is the merger of two is created by the merger of two companies. One is called X.com, and that is Elon's company. Another is called at first called Fieldlink, then it's called Confinity. Confinity creates a product called PayPal. That company is co-founded by Peter Thiel and Max Levchin. Its origins are, and the reason chapter one kicks off with Max, its origins are in cryptography, actually, in, in mobile encryption and mobile cryptography and mobile devices. In college, Max had developed a passion for like Palm Pilots and Sharp Wizards and Cassiopeias. Like this is, we're, we're, we're in the time machine now, right? Um, these low power devices, but he, he was trying to basically take these devices and, and push them to their technical limit. Like how much could you make a Palm Pilot do, right? And that is what gives rise to the company that he pitches to Peter Thiel, who is then an unknown investor. And he says, I have this idea, we're gonna do mobile encryption libraries and people will be able to rent the libraries and I'll get money and, it'll, and Peter's like, okay, well, you seem smart, so I'll invest and we'll make a thing of it. That company is called Fieldlink. That starts in late 1998. Chronologically, Elon doesn't start X.com until early 1999. So from the perspective of just accuracy, Max is sort of the, the kickoff, the leadoff hitter. More, more personally, I found that because he was not a super well-known figure, there were so many things about his life and his personality that were so interesting. Like one of my, one of my favorite writers has like this line, he says, the best characters don't know that they are characters, right? Like they're, they are intense and they come alive on the page, but if you, but they don't know it, they're not self-conscious about it, right? And Max is not household name famous. And so in a way, there's not this um, persona like built up around him, right? And so every time I, I would 
ask a few more questions or talk to a few more people, I would discover that he had these like insane interests and like a real, uh, a kind of once in a generation mind. I'll give you an example. In college, as a way of, of, if I remember correctly, as a way of basically getting around a requirement to write a paper for a class, he decides that he's going to write a paper on a film. And that film is Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. He watches Seven Samurai once and writes the paper, but it kind of like gets into his head. He spends basically an entire summer just re-watching Seven Samurai over and over and over and over again. But as of, as of our discussion right now, I believe his number is like he's watched it 110 times. Um, one movie, 110 times. And this is like a three and a half hour black and white Japanese movie, right? So we're not, we're not like, this isn't like an episodic, it's not like billions, right? <laughs> like it's not that. And so I, I just found that like, to him, that is perfectly normal. To the rest of us, that is like, whoa, what are you seeing in Seven Samurai that the rest of us don't see, right? And I found moment after moment like this, he had a near photographic memory and he would say something and then I would find a piece of paper later that spoke to it. I felt like he was he was a character who didn't know he was a character. And it, it's like his life is the stuff of legend. You know, he he is 90 miles away from Chernobyl when the reactor explodes. It hurls tons of radioactive material into the sky. He is shipped on a train away from this from the, the closest site of the disaster. And on on the way to the train, a, 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 a border guard with a Geiger counter scans his foot. And his foot sets off the Geiger counter. So they think his foot is radioactive. And at one point, there's some talk of whether he should have his foot amputated. And I think it was his mom or his grandma's like, no, 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 no. Take off his shoe and rescan the foot. They do. The foot comes back clean. It turns out it was a rose thorn in his shoe that had set off the Geiger counter. Chernobyl and the aftermath of Chernobyl shape his life in powerful ways. His family secures funding from a re Jewish refugee agency to come to the United States. He arrives as, like, I think, a sophomore in high school. He learns English by watching different strokes. Um, you know. And so I just found like these details that were so rich and candidly that weren't picked over. Like he 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 has not wanted nor built a big, you know, gigantic illuminating public life for himself. I think he still regards himself and others regard him as like an engineer's engineer. So when you have that as a writer, you've hit pay dirt. You have, you have somebody who can watch the same movie a hundred times and is also has a photographic memory. You're like you're 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 my you're, I'm kicking off with you. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and and you mentioned something else there too, where he was in college. And one of the things that I think, if you're not familiar with the PayPal story, everyone thinks, oh, well, Silicon Valley, Stanford. This must have all yeah. happened at Stanford. And of course, like it, the the university that actually matters here is the University of Illinois Champaign Urbana. And so yeah. talk to me about that. Like, how did these co-founders meet there? What were they working on? Were they, were they built? Like, like, talk to me about how the university plays, plays into it. Yeah, it's one of the, the things that I'm, I'm more than happy to, as, a, as somebody who grew up in Illinois, I was more than happy to discover this and then to correct the record in this way. Um, so Stanford is a big part of the PayPal story. To be fair, a lot of the, the you call them the business heavies, come from Stanford. You know, Reed Hoffman is a Stanford graduate. David Sachs is a Stanford graduate. Peter does two degrees at Stanford. Keith Raboy, on and on. I mean, you can go down the roster and sort of look at that. The engineering, a lot of the engineering heft for the company does come from the University of Illinois. And it's always kind of, you know, I, I had Luke Nosek tell me, like in one of my first conversations with Luke, he said, he was very skeptical, as were they all, of this project, right? Uh, and he said, if you're going to do this, just please don't write the University of Illinois out of this history, as everyone else has. And so to, to, to kind of give context, in, in 1995, a company called Netscape goes, I think it was 95, Netscape goes public. 
Netscape's founder was himself at the University of Illinois, Mark Andreessen, the, the person who founded your firm. And for an entire generation of that, of engineers, like not just the University of Illinois, but in a lot of places, that is like the starting gun for the internet revolution. But at the University of Illinois, it's personal, right? I mean, they, Max and others who were there described me, they said that, that Mark was just a few years. We, we used to see him in the bar or like we would see him on the quad. And like now he's on the cover of Time Magazine. Like if he can do it, so can we. And so there was a very direct link. The University of Illinois has, a, has an amazing history of contributions to computing. Some of the world's first digital computers are made there. Some of the world's earliest social networks are, are born there. They had a lot of Defense Department funding throughout the 20th century. So they were able to like build big labs, right? The National Center for Supercomputing Applications is there. It's called the NCSA. And you have a ton of, of really talented engineers who go there, including... Max Lebchin and the, the first two engineers that he hires come out of the University of Illinois. The, the co-founders of YouTube, two of the co-founders of YouTube come out of the University of Illinois. And you have all of these people who like are inspired by Andreessen's example and also have a pl places on campus where they're building things, building early prototypes, building like primitive applications. So a great example is um, Luke Nosek described this amazing uh, a technology called caffeine. Caffeine was the use of a, a they, they put the office vending machine on the internet and you could pay using, I think your mobile device, right? And this like obviously added time to the transaction because you could just as easily go up and like put a few kind of coins in the slot, right? But you have like this excitement about putting the soda machine online, right? Uh, although Luke Nozick was also emphatic that in the Midwest, it's pop, not soda. So I should probably correct that because it's pop, not soda. But you have this enthusiasm about digitizing everything, creating primitive prototypes, and the students are doing this, right? And so you have a very fertile ground for a lot of engineers. At University of Illinois, Max Lebchin meets Luke Nosick and Scott Bannister, two people who become very influential. He builds several failed, as you described it, failed companies, right? And then has a very small exit with the last company that he builds. It's enough money for him to come out West and begin the process of building what becomes PayPal. And that is, that is part of why I think of the University of Illinois as this unheralded center for a lot of talent. And it was a place that was like a perfect place to start this story because it was also hugely unexpected. Everyone expects a story about PayPal or Silicon Valley to start on the West Coast, not in the Midwest. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, later in the book, we get to the story of Elon, um, which is a totally different trajectory. Um, but one of the things that I think you talk about that I, I didn't know anything about, and I think we all think of Elon as this, you know, eccentric character, but he had mentors. And his mentor was was a was a man named Dr. Peter Nicholson. Talk to me about their relationship, how he helped Elon get his start, and, and sort of what you've learned there. Yeah, it was. It, Dr. Nicholson was one of the best interviewees that I had throughout this project, and and I, I and I'll I'll offer a bit of background. So when Elon moves from South Africa to Canada to attend the Queen's Queen's University Ontario. He's a, he's a fresh arrival. He knows no one. And so what he does is he, he will read newspaper articles and contact interesting people that he finds in these articles and just sort of like find ways to like kind of connect with them. He reads an article about Dr. Peter Nicholson, who at the time is an executive at the Bank of Nova Scotia, uh, also known as Scotiabank. 
But Dr. Nicholson has a background in computing and in operations research and in physics. He's a big scientific brain. In fact, that was when I first spoke to Elon about him, he said, he, he looked at me and he goes, he was a giant brain, just like super smart. And, and I just, I love that phrase, like giant brain, super smart. And so I, I said, okay, well, let me track, track him down. And Dr. Nicholson has probably like the widest set of interests I've ever met. I've ever seen another human being today, even today, he's like, his passions are like square dancing and like uh, financial stuff and computers and the history of technology. But for, for a young 19 year old, I think 19 year old Elon Musk, uh, he is, uh, he is Peter Nicholson is one of Elon's only bosses ever. And what happens is Elon contacts him and Elon and his brother Kimball go have lunch with Dr. Nicholson. And Dr. Nicholson basically says, I have one internship. Elon decides to take it. And Elon joins Scotiabank as an intern. And what happens is, is he's joined a bank, but he's joined like the right part of the bank, which is this team run by this gigantic brain. Um, and the team is essentially like a little unit within the bank that reports directly to the CEO. And if the CEO has an interesting problem, he will toss it to Dr. Nicholson and that team will get to work. Because it's a small team, Dr. Nicholson and Elon develop a very close relationship and a friendship. And I, they're still friends to this day, right? And he said to me, he said, you know, even then his like first love was space. They would sit and trade math problems and math puzzles. They would talk about space exploration. They would talk about physics. They talked about whether Elon should start a company, go to grad school or join a company. Um, all the, 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 uh, the, the, quite, the quite basic problems that exist for the rest of us actually did exist for, the, for Elon at one point in his life. And he had this mentor that was helping him think through them. And one of the things that happens with Dr. Nicholson is that he... He notices right away, he's like, this kid's very precocious. So he gives him more challenging assignments, more demanding assignments. And it's, it, was, it was revealing to see that even then, some of this big first principles thinking that Elon applies in places like automotive engineering or space logistics were evident back then. Uh, and Dr. Nicholson, you know, he was a, he's, a serious, he's a serious person. And he said, he's like, you know, it was quite clear even back then that there's a precocity about him that you just don't see in, in many people. Um, but he was one of my favorite interviewees because he also, he was thoughtful enough to, to see how those early experiences may have shaped and, and you know, uh, enabled some of Elon's later successes. And, and one of the biggest ways is, after a summer of working at a bank, Elon is very skeptical about bank leadership and innovation. I, I, I was going to say, it's funny to picture uh, Elon as an investment banking intern, but, uh, but I'm glad he had that experience. Um, now, now, one of the things that like people probably don't know is that you know PayPal was two companies, and they had somewhat different ambitions. So talk to us about the difference between X.com and Confinity and sort of how they merged. Yeah. So... Because we we were on Elon, we can start with Elon, um, which is in early 1999, Elon is fresh off an exit. He's created a company called Zip2. He's sold it, and he's thinking about what comes next. Based in part on the banking experience, he sees an opportunity in finance. What he wants X.com to do is everything under the financial sun. Like X.com is going to be, they're going to be your mortgage broker, your stock broker. They're going to do your checking accounts. They're going to do transferring money. If you want a wire transfer, you're going to go to them. If you want to take out a line of credit, you're going to go to them. It is the word, as he put it, he said, X.com was supposed to be the global financial center, right? And this is just context. Again, 1999, dial up internet. Most of us, like most of the people who have been using the internet aren't using it for transactions. People are still nervous about entering credit cards in. But even then, Elon says, 
listen, like we have this technology now that can help to upgrade bank mainframes and government mainframes, which are generally written on pretty old code and cut out all the fees. That's X.com, a revolution in finance. On the other side of the PayPal ledger, you have Confinity. And Confinity is, at the time, in mid-1999, focused on making a successful product out of Palm Pilot money beaming. So when the latest iteration of the Palm Pilot came out in 1999, it had a little infrared port in the corner. And I, I just to, to understand it, I went back and I read Palm Pilot for Dummies uh, so that I could like really get into these devices. And it's really funny because even in Palm Pilot for Dummies, they say, if you hold the infrared ports too far away, you can't, the devices won't communicate. If you hold them too close, they can't communicate. You have to have this like Goldilocks distance to get it just right, but then they can communicate. Nobody had come up with a use case for these infrared ports. There was, you couldn't use it as a remote control. You, what were you supposed to do with it? Confinity's answer is that you and I would be at lunch and you, know, you would need to send me $10 and we would take out our Palm Pilots and go through the excruciating process of beaming each other money and money beaming was gonna be a thing. So Confinity was focused on money beaming. In the summer of 1999, that product evolves to become like transmission over email. And that is where PayPal is born. And that is also where the name PayPal is born. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. And talk, talk to us about the name, because that's one of the interesting yeah. things of how they came up with the name and, and, and sort of who liked it, who didn't. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, there's like places in when you're writing books where you feel really sure-footed and then there's places where you feel like you're totally at sea. And so I was like an outsider to the world of code, right? And so for me, like, like I read a lot of papers about mobile encryption just to understand it. I read the academic papers that Max Levchin was looking at. There was a really great paper by this uh, researcher named Neil Daswani. But even if I read those papers, like I wasn't really on, you know, solid ground. Where I could be on solid ground was with words. And so I wanted to find out, like, where did this name PayPal come from? Luke Nosick had shared with me that they recognized that, like, Confinity, which is, like, few too many syllables and has con at the beginning, is not, like, the right name for a financial services company. He went into his web browser and typed in naming.com, and it pulled up the website for a company called Master McNeil. Master McNeil was founded by SV Master, and SV Master is the firm they contract with to come up with the name PayPal. And what's... The, Esby's one of my favorite characters in the book, just like I, I like because she's a word person, but also just because she's so thoughtful about naming. So she has a whole long process that when she contracts with a company to create like a product or a service, she goes through hundreds of names. She interviews the team members to understand like the history of the company and like some of her claims to fame. The trackpad that's on your laptop, she named the trackpad for Apple. She named Touchstone Pictures. She named Weston Hotels. So she's got, and I think, you know, one of her, her fondest memories is naming PayPal. Her finalists, you know, just to show you what history might have been, uh, were Cache, Momo, eMoneyBeam, uh, Zapio. Zapio got, was, was on the list. But I was really fortunate. SB had actually kept in her files the slides that advocated for PayPal. And I, I had that information and included it in the book, the sort of six or seven reasons why PayPal was the best possible name for this company. And they're, they're very specific. Again, this is not a, a, Esby has a view that a lot of companies will come up with names as what she calls like a purely creative process, throw it up against a wall and see what sticks. She says, no, a name is a, actually a crucial business decision. And what's amazing about Esby had a, at a Harvard MBA, and she had like a, a background in literature. And so she had this like nice spot on the Venn diagram where like words and business meet. With PayPal, it's memorable, 
it's friendly sounding. And as she put it, she's like, your pal is more than your friend. Like your pal has your, their arm around you, right? It's a, it's a warmer relationship. It's a warmer definition and, and, and warmer image in your mind. She says, the, uh, the, the P's create plosives. So you have to actually like stop the air in your throat, which leads you to like remember the name for a half beat longer. There's, there's some pretty decent linguistics research on this. And you, you have this change later, but you have the, the capital P and the lowercase L, which create ascenders. And you have the lowercase P and the lowercase Y, or sorry, the lowercase Y and the lowercase P, which create descenders. That's like visually very symmetrical. Now, the interesting thing, and we never could find the origin, is that at some point they capitalized the middle P. And, and she went into her great, I'm very grateful. She went into her files and she came back and said, Jimmy, the only thing I can find is this little note that I have that says, chose PayPal with a capital P. And I don't know who, I, she couldn't recall its origins, but that's where PayPal was born. It was the work of SV Master and her team at Master McNeil, really thinking through very diligently, like, how are you going to make this process of even like beaming money between Palm Pilots more inviting to people and certainly more inviting than a company that starts with the word con. Yeah, yeah, no, and it, yes, it, very true. And, and what, what's so interesting is I've heard Peter Thiel many times talk about how the name of startups is so important to him as an investor. I um, mean, if you look at, say, PayPal's friendly, even though it's a, you know, a, a financial, a, a fintech business, um, but something like an Uber does not have, it has a menacing tone. It has a, you know, it's a name that means things in other languages that aren't necessarily, uh, you know, equated with goodness. And so it's, you know, in, in some ways, it's like, it's interesting to see that that story may have carried on through a lot of the investors, since many of the people in this book go on to be great, outstanding investors. Yeah, he, he actually... It- in, in other settings, but also to me, mentioned that he said, you know, we always thought PayPal was friendlier than X.com. And he said, I believe like Facebook was more uh, genial than MySpace, which felt a little bit more selfish. Uh, he, Uber sounds a little menacing relative to Lyft, which has a sort of like, you know, quality of, of, uh, of uh, a sort of uplifting quality. Um, I, I think of the naming, you know, I, I like the etymology of how things come to be. And so for me, understanding where the name came from was was interesting. I think it's also interesting that in spite of all of the talent in this room at the time, right, some of the leading technologists of our day, they were so backwards on the on the names. You know, Esby had to advocate for PayPal. The team did not warm to it initially. You had, a, you had people in the room saying, this is a terrible idea. No one's going to trust your money with a PayPal years later actually even one year later but years later especially to a person they said you know we were we were she was right we were wrong like she she nailed it on the head yeah no and it's nice that elon did end up getting his ex with spacex so everything comes full circle (laughs) everything does and he owns he now owns the url again he purchased it from paypal corporate uh some years ago um and and it was a it's the end of one of the final scenes in the book is is him reacquiring the x.com domain it was restored to its 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 rightful owner yeah yeah so so one of the things that you've gotten so much praise for is the fact that you talk you know you you talked to so many people who worked at the company it wasn't just talking to the famous names or the the, the people who've gone on to be very successful but that you talked to many of the employees you were able to get troves of emails uh because you know a lot of the people who worked at, at paypal were pack rats talk to us about some of the lesser known figures and how they impacted both your understanding of the story and also just the story itself yeah it's it's a really good question and i'm, I'm glad people have picked up on it um i had a view that the most interesting stuff in companies tends not to happen in the boardroom or in the C-suite. 
you know, it's, it's really in, in the like kind of micro creations and ideas that happen among employees that you're going to get the richest like material and reflections and stories that are never told. I also had, had just personally, at, when I started at the beginning of this story, you know, it's easy to get seduced with the idea that it's the, the megawatt personalities, like the really well-known people that drove the company forward. But time and again, what would happen is those people would play back to me and say, oh, you should really talk to David Gauzebeck because he was responsible for helping to create the CAPTCHA. Or you should really talk to Amy Rowe Clement because she basically like ran this product team. You should really talk to Sky Lee because she's the designer that made these things work. So I would just hear names and then I would just do cold emails or, you know, and, and reach out. And I kind of consciously wanted to tie all of these threads together because in some cases, these people had never been spoken to about the PayPal experience. Like no one, it was so easy to reach out to people who are accustomed to press. Um, for someone who's never been contacted by, by a writer, you know, it could be a little bit of a discomforting experience. Like they can, they can have their, have their guard up. I, I tried to win trust. It took years with some people. I had to fill out questionnaires. I had to like do all sorts of things. I had to take red eye flights just to make schedules work. Um, but, but part of what happened is that I, I found a series of characters who like Max are like novelistic, but they don't know that they are. And that was the best. And no one had actually really gone into their lives. I think the canonical, one of the canonical examples for me is a gentleman whose name is Sanjay Bhargava. Uh, Sanjay is not someone who's, you know, a household name. Elon hires Sanjay very early on at X.com. And Sanjay is a brilliant mind who has worked in financial services for a, a long time at that point. He had had a failed startup and joins X.com. One of the signature contributions he makes is something that almost all of us listening and watching have used before. If you've had to register your bank account with another institution, you've probably gone through the experience of like, they'll have to send you like a little bit of change, right? They'll send you like three cents and 25 cents. And your code is 0325. That was invented by Sanjay Bhargava at PayPal. And the reason was because he needed to, the company needed to find a way to authenticate bank accounts. If you say you own your bank account, how do I really know unless you can access it? If I just have your checking account routing numbers, anybody, anybody with avoided check could do that. Sanjay figures out, well, what if we did what's called random deposit? We send you two random numbers and you then can authenticate and verify that you are who you say you are. It was a breakthrough innovation. It helps the company shift its cost curve and dependency on credit cards. And it's something that even today is ubiquitous. And I found him to just be the most amazing character. I had somebody say to me, watching Sanjay navigate the financial system was watching a conduct was like watching a conductor conducted a symphony, right? Which is just like the most amazing thing to say about the finance about what is like a ster the sterile the sterility of the financial system. You don't often hear the word symphony attached to it. But I found him to be uncommonly thoughtful and and to have had this breakthrough innovation. I went searching for those. I went searching for the person who was closest to the action, not the person whose name was in the paper. And and I, I you know, you never know if these things are going to work. But I will say that PayPal's story is packed to the brim with those kinds of people, right? It's not an accident actually that all these people have gone on to do many amazing things in their in the sort of post PayPal life. Because person after person made these sorts of contributions and they were hugely consequential, which is actually why I write like you can't tell the story of PayPal as a story of one or two or even three people. Yeah, no, definitely.
Yeah. No, one of the, going back to the talent question, you know, there's, there's so many people in this book who are just known in the Valley as just being like the best judges of character of talent. Mm. Uh, they can acquire talent very well. They, they recruit for their companies. Um, you know, it's one of the differentiators of a, a good CEO and a great CEO is just how great they are at recruiting. And one of the things that struck me or surprised me in the book is, you know, we don't talk about Elon as a great recruiter, but a lot yeah. of the people in this book were recruited by Elon. So I'd, I'd love to hear what was his approach to recruiting talent? Like, is, was it surprising to you that, that he was the one that was recruiting a lot of a, a lot of the great characters? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it because it's one of the things that's been written out of the history. Um, he has, like a few of the others in the story, but, but putting the spotlight on him, he has an incredible eye for engineering talent, product talent, and business talent. And, and it, 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 he recruits Amy Rowe Clement. He recruits Sanjay Bhargava, Sandeep Lal, Roloff Botha, who today kind of you know, runs Sequoia Capital. Elon tries not once, but twice to bring him aboard. And, and Roloff actually rejects him both times until this third time when Roloff is having a personal financial crisis and is like, hey, can I come intern for you, right? And he, he has this keen eye for the best people around. Here's the other thing that, that makes him, I think, a particularly effective recruiter is he's basically relentless and moves very, very quickly until he closes somebody who is interested or somebody he wants. So the, the, to go back to the example of Sanjay, Sanjay was connected to Elon through email. And he says, okay, great. When I'm next in the Valley, he was living, I'll come down, I'll come and see you. And Elon says, no, 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 no. I'll buy you a plane ticket. You have to come tonight. And so he flies. They're supposed to have 10 minutes of dinner at, some, uh, at a hamburger joint. They start at eight. They don't stop talking until four o'clock in the morning. And at, at four o'clock in the morning, Elon looks at him and says, can you come in at seven and get your offer letter? I'd like to make you an offer. So again and again, he would make offers on the spot. He could, he could sense this, this quality of somebody who was going to be a good fit for his team, but just a, a good person to have on the team in general. And I would say that one of the, one of the things I hope that the book corrects is, you know, the community side of the team, Peter and Max, like get a lot of credit for the people they recruit. I don't think Elon's gotten equal credit for the folks he recruited, but there's some of the people who make the place tick and frankly make it successful. And so it was part of what I noticed was just his very keen eye for talent. And I don't think it's something that gets written enough, you know, because there's so many, like when you're hosting SNL, that's probably like a dry subject <laughs> to, to write about. But it's one of the things that definitely came through in the PayPal story is just how many people who, who all, the other part of it is he, paint an inspiring portrait of what x.com can be and that recruits and that also encourages these people to join to sign up absolutely yeah so let's talk about fraud uh, a huge portion of the paypal story you devote a number of chapters of it in the book uh, why does it matter and then how did you approach it in the book yeah so it's it's the it's one of the many what i would think of as is i wouldn't say untold but let's sort of like undercooked stories, right? That's been in the culture. Um, PayPal is not the only payment system on the block in 1999. There are many others. There are early cryptocurrencies, there are digital coins, there are mobile wallets, there are, there are digital banks. And so one of the things you have to ask yourself if you're writing this from, the, from coming as an outsider is, well, why did they succeed where everyone else failed? One of the big reasons is that PayPal was able to successfully defeat digital and online fraud at a time when digital and online fraud was like, it was just starting and it was sort of the wild west. There wasn't established case law on how you deal with these things. So what, what happens is you have a successful payments platform in PayPal. 
millions of people start to use the platform, including bad actors. Some of these are just like college students who are like using PayPal to get bonus, using bonus incentives to get beer money. That's like fraud you can manage. But more sophisticated fraudsters do come from, you know, um, from abroad, from like ex-Soviet satellite states. You have hacking groups that are based both in the United States and abroad that are using PayPal. You have, uh, there was a fraudster who created a website that was paypi.com, P-A-Y-P-A-I, because on your keyboard, the I and L key are so close to each other. He created a copycat site that looked exactly the same and would dupe users into giving away their personal financial information. You have fraud of all kinds. In 2000, fraud is burning up the company's balance sheet. They have at one point $60 million in the bank, and they're burning through between, some estimates have it between 11 and $13 million a month. So roughly like five months of runway left. They have to figure out how to fix this. It isn't one fix. It's multiple fixes. It involves human beings who are fraud fighters, many of whom I interviewed, who are just the most amazing characters, right? They're like Star Wars figures. They're incredible. It's digital fixes. PayPal is where the CAPTCHA is invented. So all of you who are annoyed by like finding fire hydrants and, and stuff, like you have, you have them to thank. Um, it's also working with law enforcement to educate U.S. attorneys, district attorneys, and others about what, what does online fraud even look like? After 9-11, the government turns to PayPal to help understand, is there terrorist financing moving through these networks? All of this is the thing that in some ways like ought to have killed the company in the year 2000. It is also the thing that is their signature breakthrough. Like full stop, it is the reason that the company survived where others failed. And, and one person who, who Ken Miller, who was one of the people on, who was responsible for some of these technologies and some of the organizational ballast, he said to me, he's like, you know, fraudsters are kind of lazy. So as we got better at fraud fighting, they would just move to our competitors who weren't as good and they would clean them out. And so we sort of had this like weird competitive advantage that came from just defeating the fraudsters. Yeah. That's just incredible. Um, now, one of the things, I mean, going back to just how much detail is in this book, um, you know, it, it, as a historian, as someone who often is used to going back to libraries, I mean, this is a contemporary history. And so you have to sort of hunt down people who still have emails, who still are mm -hmm. willing to open up. I mean, I would just love to hear about your process. How were you able to get this level of detail and, and, and convince a lot of the, you know, a lot of the characters in the book to, to share some of these, you know, really personal anecdotes and personal sort of spats that were happening in the company um, that may or may not look, make people look, uh, look that favorable? You know, I, I think there's a few answers to the to the question. The the one thing that I benefited from is that the story is 20 years old, right? So PayPal prop, you know, goes public in two, this is actually the, this year is the 20th anniversary of the PayPal IPO. When two decades have passed, like, and all of these people are not involved in the day to day creation of the company, they're a little bit more open about like war stories and, and reminiscing, right? I didn't have to push as hard to get answers to questions. In fact, one of the funny thing is how many of them made fun of me that I was even interested in this topic. Like they would give me grief for being interested in something that happened 20 years ago. And I, in my back of my mind, I was like, oh, if you spend all day thinking about the future, no wonder you think like I'm a curiosity for thinking about the past, right? Um, that, that was part of it is I was on, you know, 20 years had passed, like they, they were happy to chat. And, and I, but I would say that there were two other pieces that were really helpful. One is that I did have the, the good fortune of having a number of people who shared emails. I don't know why they kept these notes and documents and board minutes and, and various phone lists and things, but they did. And they said, hey, this could be helpful to you. And it was, it gave the 
it gave me the ability to see not what someone remembered through the haze of time, but what someone wrote to, to the entire company at, in the moment. And so I hope like you get the immediacy of, you know, salt and pepper being played across the, the speakers. I hope people can see like jokes about Napster and the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and, and things that are these like relics from the 1990s, because it was all what I was seeing when I was reading these notes and documents. The last thing is, the virtue of having phoneless is that I could diligently try to contact several hundred people over the course of five and a half years. And so what I would do is I had a little color coding system and I would just try everyone respectfully, but I would try everyone a, a couple of times and I, I kind of just made my way through. I mean, it, there were people I interviewed who were at the company for two weeks. There was somebody I interviewed at the company who was there for three months and, and there were other people who were there for the entirety of the period they were, that the company was from 1998 to 2002. I interviewed board members. A lot of this was just shoe leather. It was the belief that maybe if you send it a cold email, someone will respond. And I had enough of those people respond and, and very eager to talk and share memories. Um, so I, I think part of it was work and part of it was luck and timing. I, I also think, you know, I, I was like living, as you know, all too well, because this is all we would talk about. I was like living in the 1990s for five and a half years. Like I wouldn't read any news. I like sort of really tried to stay there. And then I woke up and like Dr. Dre is doing the Super Bowl and the 1990s are cool again. And so I was like, oh, this is great. You got, everyone just caught up to where I was, which is this, you know. Everyone, this everything comes full circle. Yeah. So so before we hop into to audience Q&A, I want to end and I, and I hope you're okay ending here because it's such a moving part of the book. In some ways, I don't want to make you tell the story, um, but but I do want you to tell the story because it's so moving and so impactful. You know, you end the the book with basically in a prison. Um, and I, and I, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you how you found this this these people, the story, and 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 how it ends this way. Yeah, it's the most um, surprising thing to me in looking back at it. Even um, so, I struggled with how to end this book. Uh, as as Katie knows, like this was like the thing that kept me up at night because you know, you, you could sort of float into the PayPal mafia motif stuff, uh, which was the name given to a handful of these people in 2007. It was a cup fortune magazine cover story. It was called the PayPal mafia. And they're famously like dressed up in mafioso regalia, but it felt like that had been done to death. You know, like it's sort of like a, a, a kind of way it was a trope. It was something that was there and it was fine. Everyone had seen it. Then I started looking abroad and I was like, okay, where else can I find? And it turned out abroad, actually the term, meant something different. And here's what it meant. When the company Copo Copo has a success in Kenya, its founders write explicitly about wanting to now, after their success, build the PayPal mafia of East Africa, right? In Canada, it was WorkBrain. In Europe, it was Monzo. In India, it was Flipkart. There's actually tons of references to the Flipkart mafia. So I had that. I was like, okay, that could be interesting. Like, how do you, how, from what seed group could emerge this sort of ecosystem of technology? Then I learned that a young man named Chris Wilson, who was a friend of mine, had studied and thought about the PayPal mafia while he was incarcerated for murder one in the Patuxent Institution in Jessup, Maryland. And I knew Chris because I'd, I'd kind of been just as a friend helping him on the, the book that he had written. I had no idea about his interest in the PayPal Mafia, and it went way beyond what I had thought. I thought, okay, maybe he knew a little bit about them, but he had actually taught effectively the book I was writing. He taught 
the PayPal story in prison in a series of entrepreneurial workshops, he and his cellmate, Stephen Edwards, managed to get a copy of that 2007 Fortune magazine article. They became captivated by it. They became captivated by the stories of Max and Elon and Peter and Reed. And what they started to do is any business publication that came into the prison, they would find articles about this group and then assemble a packet. And they would photocopy the packet and teach entrepreneurial workshops inside this maximum security facility. And I, this just blew my mind. And at first I thought, okay, maybe this is too pat. Maybe this is like just no, when I interviewed both of them at great length, I realized that they took all of these lessons and learnings from this story. And astonishingly, both of them, you know, managed to earn their freedom. Today, they both run businesses. In fact, Stephen's a software entrepreneur. Um, he's working in civic tech. Uh, he, his technology is helping cities like do logistics for COVID-19 testing. Um, and Chris Wilson, you know, his book debuted on, on Trevor Noah, and he's a globetrotting artist. And he, he lives in, he has built real estate businesses and now builds it, has a very successful, uh, he's a very successful artist and he's doing all kinds of other things. They found inspiration in this. It was the, the place where their thoughts about it, frankly, went way beyond even where I had thought about it. Like what they drew from the story in prison was interesting to me. And so, you know, I'd, I'd hoped it would be interesting to readers. Yeah, it's just a remarkable story and shows just the, you know, we, we always talk about the the impact of the PayPal mafia on technology, but really on on kind of normal people's lives too, is this really, really powerful story. So I want to turn to, to audience questions. We have one. Um, oh, are, are any of the founders still involved in any way in the company? You know, I can't speak to whether they're shareholders of, of the company, but none of the original founders are involved operationally with, with PayPal. Um, you know, PayPal is a very different company now than it, than it was then. It's much bigger, right? In some ways, it's achieved the scale that its founders had hoped. Um, it's, actually, it's actually funny. That the question leads me to another thought, which is the afterlife of the company is they, in 2002, they go public. They're acquired by eBay. In 2015, they go public again. And, and today, PayPal is many times larger than, than eBay, the place where it first found success. But so far as I know, none of them are, not, I, in fact, I can say with some confidence, none of them are actively involved at all with the company itself. Whether they're shareholders or not, I, I can't speak to that. It didn't come up in conversation. I think that in the same way that they kind of gave me some grief for being interested, PayPal is a distant part of their past. Max Lepton, in my first conversation with him, is he started off in a not great way for an author who's like looking to spend time with him and get to know him. He was like, I don't want to be just the person who created PayPal like 15 years ago. That can't be my legacy. <laughs> and, and, and so I think in a way, it's like this, this thing they've all, that they all credit with so much, but they are also all trying to escape in, in some, in some way. It makes sense. All of us want to forget who we were in college. So <laughs> it's that, that point in life. So impactful, but yeah. So, so another question, are the founders friendly with each other now? You know, I, I, so it, it, it depends on how you define founders and it probably depends on how you define friendly. Um, no, I mean, in all seriousness, so far as I know, there's not, you know, I found that everyone was actually somewhat still in loose touch with each other. They've done a few reunions. Um, and actually, let me, let me add one little thing on this. My definition of founders in this book is broader than just like named co-founders on some investment document, right? So if people look at the book cover, they'll see faces and, and names they've never seen. If they look at the back cover, they might see people they've never heard of. 
I wanted to expand the definition of founders to include anybody that's at this like very intense period of founding a company. And that might not be like legally the definition of founders, but I do actually, I would defend that, that editorial choice uh, pretty because these people went through this very bruising, very difficult experience together and poured blood, sweat and tears into the company. David Sachs, you know, some people credit David Sachs, like as one of the people who really refine the product vision. He's not technically a co-founder, but it, people would put him in that group. I found that that there were certain friendships that I think matured and and developed more different, you know, differently than others. You know, they're always bonded. These people are always tied to this experience and they have invested in work with one another. So Russ Simmons and Jeremy Stoppelman built Yelp together. The three co-founders of YouTube obviously worked together to build YouTube. A number of people at a, at a firm, Max Legends Company, are alumni from PayPal. You know, there were people who joined Elon at Tesla and SpaceX. So I think it depends on on which friendships you're talking about. But for the most part, what I had heard was like largely positive relationships and certainly very strong professional ties across this group. Yeah, no, cer- and certainly on the on the investment side, there's sort of just if you tried to map all of the investments going from from Peter Thiel to Elon to to Roloff, investing in a number of his former you know former colleagues, I mean, it, just the, the the map would just be completely overridden. So whatever you know, if, if there was any sort of non friendliness, they're certainly letting each right. other invest in all of their own projects and working together on those things. So that's a very well, and, and I will say, I think I think the rivalry that you know people might be interested in the most, or or I think it's been made into something that it isn't, is there's some fiction about Elon and Peter, you know, not not liking each other. And I, I don't know the truth of it, and I never asked either about it. But I can tell you that the day that I interviewed Elon, his dinner guest that night was Peter Thiel. And so, like, if you don't like somebody, I'm not sure, like, given that you have your pick of the litter of who you could have over for dinner, like. I, I think someone needs to blow up this this idea that they don't get along. They're co-invested with each other. Elon is inside Peter's book Zero to One. And again, like you don't have people over for dinner if you don't get along with them. So I, I do think there's this let me I'll add one little other kernel on this, which is these people operate in, in rare air intellectually. And so, you know, there there's a kind of I think fellow feeling that emerges from having done PayPal together. But more than that, it's it's a set of of interests and passions about technology and the future and science and engineering and math that go deep. And I, and I don't, I, you know, I can't speak to their contemporary friendships, but I can tell you that I saw a lot of, of positive interactions across the group. Yeah, no, and, and we might have already answered this, but someone just asked, did you, did you speak with Peter Thiel for the book? So maybe your impressions there. Yeah, several, several times. He was actually a really great, he was a great interlocutor and helped me think about the ideas in the book. Um, you know, he's, he's not, an anecdote person. Uh, we would we would talk about ideas about technology, about team building, about you know he had a great a lo- lengthy meditation about what it was like to hire Reed Hoffman, who is his friend. Like what happens when your friend becomes your subordinate in a company? Um, so it was things like that. But we had multiple chats about this. I mean, he's one of the na- early. He's basically the sort of you know employee too. He's the CEO of the company. He's the CEO when it goes public. And I so I had multiple interactions with him for the book. So I, I know we only have a few minutes left. You know, my last question: What did you What did you personally learn about Silicon Valley? You know, there's a lot of misconceptions I think for, for outsiders of Silicon Valley of how the ecosystem works, of all these crazy people thinking about the future. Uh, what did you learn about how how the system works and how the ecosystem works, um, and what surprised you most about it? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And, and, I, and I think it's one of those that like, I think in five years, I'll have like a better answer potentially, but I'll, I'll offer two that jump to mind for me. One is uh, Silicon Valley is unusually tolerant of people who are uh, on the fringes or misfits in other parts of society, right? Um, there is a high degree of openness to people who might not communicate with perfect English, who might not dress like in a way that would be acceptable, like with a McKinsey and company job, right? Who have ideas, uh, you know, about everything from life extension to, to, you know, space travel that is embraced. That level of unorthodox thinking is embraced in this place. And I found it, I know that it's, there's some ideas about that, but I found it very vividly in my discussions with these people when those topics would come up all the time as you know, in a perfectly normal, like if you and I were talking about the weather, right? Like we would be talking about how we can live to be 150, right? Uh, like it was, it was, it was par for the course. I don't know that there are other places in American life that embrace that kind of like just, just truly like heterodox thinking. I, I found it really encouraging. I was like, well, good. Like someone should be stirring the pot on some of these. That's great. The second thing I, I found interesting was, you know, as a writer, like, and you know this from your time in, in journalism, when you can find the perfect word for a paragraph or like the perfect closing sentence or like something snaps together, it's like, it's a thrill. It's a complete thrill. It's not a thrill that a lot of non-writers understand because writing is often just homework for other people, right? And like you and I chose lives that were like, we basically decided to do homework for years and years and years. Writing code has a lot in common with writing, uh, meaning I found in some of the people who are engineers that same satisfaction when the one thing fit into the other thing and then it all worked, that thrill is real. And it's easy to miss it when you press a button on your phone and something works or when you type an address into Google Maps and it works like exactly like it's supposed to. It's very easy to miss the like months of labor and satisfaction and joy that actually are underneath those, those things, right? Like we have this really distant relationship. These aren't hot rods, right? Like our phones are pretty sleek and the apps are really sleek and the buttons look really good. Someone had to do all of that. And I found that in speaking to the engineers, there was a real pride of craft that I, that I, and a real joy about when something fit right into place. And the only way I knew I could to knew to describe it was just that like writers have the same, they've had the same joy. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think that makes it makes a ton of sense. We often make this false dichotomy that you're either a math person, a coder, an engineer, or you're a, a reader and a writer and a, you know, a literary hound. And it's like, actually some, some, mo there's a lot more synergies than, than we actually, uh, we actually yeah. think there are. I, I kick off the book with a quote from Ada Lovelace for exactly that reason, because some of her meditations on like what, you know, the earliest computing uh, have a literary quality. And I, I found that in the people that I interviewed. Yeah. Well, with that, thank you so much, Jimmy, for, for joining the conversation. Again, the, the new book is The Founders. And thanks again, everyone, for joining. Have a good evening. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.